Well, I'm Holly Ren Spaulding. I'm going to read you two poems from my new book, Familiars, which was just published by Green and Company. And this is a collection of, in many cases, very, very short poems, very um, compact poems that often benefit from being read in sequence. And for that reason, I'm going to read two slightly longer poems that appear a little bit later in the collection, um, because I think in this setting, they will make more sense than the littles will. Maybe something to know about these poems is that they are spoken in the voices of flora and fauna. So the title will give you a sense of who's speaking. This one's called Dandelion. You could work all year with poison and blades. Night, then late night, and still this yellow dusted glow, stems silking to pink. Everyone knows our true name endures. They want us gone, but we won't go. Terrapin. You are not alone, flinging your bodies into dark water, murk. Bats wing overhead, the shore vibrates with song. You don't know my kind or this pool you've crashed, though you shiver at the thought of what you cannot see. And you are glad for this place before all that is portended comes to pass. This floating in the cool layers, last light until you can't. Welcome to Poet Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Mulder. As 2020 is slowly coming to its agonizing close, I wanted to fit one more interview into the lineup. Holly Wren Spaulding, who you just heard read from her newest book, Familiars, is a poet, a teacher, and one of the most generous individuals I've had the opportunity to know. I was so grateful she was willing to sit down with me and talk about her new book, her work, and about Poetry Forge, what she calls Imagination School, which you will definitely want to look up. We'll jump right in, and I'll have more information for you at the end of the podcast. I'd like to welcome you, Holly. Thank you so much for joining me on Poet Kind today. Um, I've followed you for a while. I've had um, the good pleasure of being able to learn from you a couple of times. And I am really excited to introduce you to my listeners. So welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. Um, Holly is a, is a poet, uh, a teacher. She is just one of the most generous spirits that I've come across. I would like to ask you, if you don't mind the way you know, I kind of begin everything. Tell us a little bit about yourself and also the journey that brought you to where you are right now. Sure. Um, well, as you say, I'm, I'm a writer and I teach and the form that that teaching takes these days is um, year-round programming that I offer through my, my school, 
Poetry Forge, which is these days happening entirely online, though. Just a beautiful book. And it just, it, I also have your other book, If August. And that was my first introduction to your writing. Um, I, I came across you more as a teacher first and then found, um, found your words there. And that is such an interesting book to me because it is, it is one long poem and each page maybe has, you know, one or very few lines on it, but then each one stands individually on its own as a full, full-blooded poem. And I love that. What, what inspired you to create such thoughtful distillations of poetry? Well, that's such a good description of how that book works. Um, you know, those, I mean, that's the, the, my interest in distillation goes way, way, way back. And maybe that's, you know, kind of my, the shortest definition I could come up with for what, you know, what's the job of the poet, you know, it is to distill experience, to distill emotion. And so I, I suppose I can, well before I published If August, I was thinking about, you know, what, what is required to make contact with a reader in a really sort of direct, maybe even efficient way? Um, you know, how does one go about transmitting or communicating the, the essence of a moment or, an, you know, the essence of an impression? So I feel like I've been teaching myself how to do this for quite a while. And um, the, the basis for If August was actually a poem that when it was, when I wrote it, you know, just was a number of pages. It wasn't, it wasn't designed into the book that you see when you pick up If August, where you really, you understand like each of these um, pages is its own poem unto itself. Um, I figured out, so, so when I wrote the original poem, which had a different title, I knew it was very good, but I never published it even, you know, in any form. And a number of years passed. And then after reading a poet by the name of Thomas A. Clark, who's a, who's a Scottish conceptual artist and writer whom I really admire and who frequently writes about walking through the Scottish landscape. And, um, you know, his, his poems, often don't have titles and you kind of just read one to the next and you you have the sense of movement and it's as though you're sort of following him through his experience on his shoulder. And that was the thing that I needed to read that kind of helped me realize the form that I wanted if August to take. Um, other influences include, for example, the fragments of Sappho and this, my appreciation for how those how I, you know, I respond to those, which they're very spare in some cases, often with a lot of white space, but they, you know, even a single fragment can have quite a lot of impact. So mm -hmm. that, has, that has been important to me too. And of course, um, I've been for, you know, a long time, as long as any of my other influences, I've been reading haiku and, um, and maybe especially Basho, who was a walker and a wanderer. And he, you know, he had these, he has these wonderful, you know, evocations of, the, his life as a wandering monk poet. Um, so I, I salute Sappho and Thomas A. Clark and Basho in particular as, as formative influences in terms of my figuring out 
the formal elements of if August. Well, and we also, the other thing I wanna to note too is um, you're very mindful about the visual aspect. So your books, both of the ones that I have are beautiful. The covers, the way they feel, the layout on the page. Uh, you're very mindful of that. And so in familiars, you know, you have this delightful cover. Did you plan this particular cover knowing how you came about what it's what familiars is about? And I, I you can answer that, but then I'd like you to go on and talk about familiars and how that that came into being. Yeah, well, I, you, you are absolutely right. I do care about the visual element very much. I have a background in, um, in visual art alongside the, the writing. So I, I'm someone who's thinking a lot about how things look, how things feel. I think about color, you know, all the things you would if you, if you appreciate visual art in any way. I, I wanna salute the, the other people who are a part of making a, a book. So um, Jean Boucher Bartlett is a, um, she's a, I think she also does printmaking, but she's a letterpress artist and a, and a book binder and a book designer in Ann Arbor who designed familiars and um, made many subtle and important decisions about how that one looks and feels. I did select the painting, which is by an English painter by the name of Elliot Hodgkin. He's no longer living, uh, but the, the painting, which is called Undergrowth is from 1941 and it's in the collection of the Tate. And uh, just because I'm someone who follows artists and museums, that it was one that I found along the way and it was um, an idea. So for those who are not looking at the book, you essentially see this sort of weedy um, close-up of um, a number of different plants. You're at the sort of level of the ground. And um, I responded to it in part because they, it, they are essentially ordinary or common plants. They're not the most charismatic plants in the garden or in the field. You know, there's burdock and Queen Anne's lace and aster and um, a plant called lady's shank, which I didn't know the name of, but which I've become very fond of because it's also here along the coast where I live. Um, and there, it, it wasn't known immediately that this was the right cover for this book. But I think, you know, in any process of making a book and edit, any editorial process, you have, you have editors, you have the book designer, you have the author, you know, and not every author gets to weigh in on the cover. But I really enjoy working with Alice Green and Company because they are willing to listen to suggestions. And, um, and, and the more we sort of refine the vision, the more we were able to say, yes, this suits this work because it puts you in this kind of intimate relationship with these plants. And, um, and, and then you're, you know, you open it and you're into the book. So, you know, the other people who are involved in this are um, the uh, Jill Peak and Bill, um, Colin O'Brien at Jill, at the, um, sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here. Jill Peak and Colin O'Brien at the Alice Green and Company, you know, press where the, the book was published. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember correctly, many of the pieces in this book came from a residency that you had done. Is that correct? And that, that's, that's kind of yeah. how it started it on its way with some of the research you did. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Yeah, I was invited, or I should say, I was nominated to be an artist in residence in a program in Northern Michigan called the Ann Hall Artist in Residency. Um, and part of that residency is um, involves presenting work in a gallery. So historically, this this particular residency has only been for visual artists, um, especially painters, I think. And I was nominated by a couple of painters to the to the position because they recognized my sort of ongoing commitment to thinking about the visual aspects of poetry, which is, you know, I'm not the only poet who cares about that. There, there are plenty of poets who think about this, but it's not always the case. And um, I had done some public works and the sort of installation type work that made them think, oh, maybe this would be a good opportunity fit. that I could do something with. Um, and so because I knew as part of this residency, I would have a place to show work as opposed to simply read work, I took the opportunity to work out an idea that I'd been walking around with for a number of years. And the, the essential idea was I wanted to use letterpress, you know, to produce a body of work or to, to print a body of work and then put it in the gallery and, and in doing so really contemplate can, can poems, you know, the right poems in this case, hopefully meet readers or meet visitors to a gallery in a way that's fairly immediate and that feels interesting and it's perhaps different or may, and maybe also more accessible than they would be in a book because you know let's face it many people will never pick up a book of poems but I am interested in the ways in which poetic language can meet us in other places in the world and with that basic idea in mind which I'd been sort of gnawing on for a while but just didn't have a place to do it I started thinking about what, so what are those, you know, what poems? And um, I'll spare you the, the six months I spent working on a completely different body of work and then discovering that I that wasn't the right thing for the situation. But in a kind of moment of, um, in a way sort of crisis because I was starting to run short on time to prepare this whole project. I, in January, 2017, um, you know, very shortly before the inauguration, um, I decided that I wanted to work with a list of nature words that had been recently, or at least I had learned recently, had been deleted from a popular children's dictionary in Britain, um, the Oxford Junior Dictionary. And they had been deleted from the, the edition that was coming out or had just come out because they needed to make room for technology words. So they removed Blackberry and put in um, actually Blackberry the device. Uh, they removed Clover and they put in chat room. There was this kind of like, we need space. We can only have so many words. And the words that they chose to replace uh, the nature words with are all um, technology words, words that have to do with virtual reality and devices and the sort of life that essentially most of us lead now. And I reacted to that um, in a number of different ways, but I thought, well, I wanna recuperate this language. I wanna use it in some way that's interesting and you know, sort of restores it. Um, so I thought about it as kind of a conservation project as well. So what came out of that was a body of work called uh, Lost Lexicon. And there were, um, I made 22 prints with the assistance of a master printer in Massachusetts, you know, taking great care with typography and the choice of the paper and so forth. And um, when I presented that work and gave my artist talk, um, 
my publisher, the publisher that had done If August was also present and they saw that the audience was responsive and interested and was asking, where's the book? And of course I hadn't been thinking about a book at that point. And they came to me later and they said, you know, if you continue working and think there's a book in this, we're interested in publishing it. So over the course of a couple of years of writing, I, I became certain that I had a book and that's, you know, that's how that, that's, that it then became familiars. I, I didn't have that name until very, very late in the process. I love that um, because is bigger than just the loss of a word. It is more of a, I don't know, maybe this is a stretch, but a philosophical disenfranchisement of the, the physical world around us, replacing it with this artificial, you know, this, this technology language that is replacing in some ways the essence of where we, where we come from and where we belong. It's creating this new environment. And um, I, that's such a sad thing to me, but also, you know, I, I appreciate so much that you are looking at those words and you're creating these wonderful pieces from that. And it's, it's digging in, it's this refusal to let it go because it shouldn't be let go. Wow. Why didn't we call you when we needed someone to write the, the book description? <laughs> um, yes, I think you have that exactly right. I really appreciate this, this use of the word disenfranchisement, um, which is, there's consequence to that. I mean, these days we're thinking about, or I certainly am thinking about, I think most people are thinking a lot about what it would mean to be disenfranchised as a voter. Yeah. Um, but, but I love this use of it in, in describing, you know, what, you know, some of the ways we can think about what it means to not only remove words from a, a dictionary, of course, those words still exist. We do use them in any case. Um, one has to wonder what will children, will children know these words and use them and be able to recognize these things in the future if we don't think it's important for them to have that in the dictionary that they will be using when they're young, you know, the dictionary is aimed right. at children who um, are. So when I started working on this, my, I am a parent to an 11 year old. So she was eight and um, it would have been exactly the dictionary, you know, she might've started out with, particularly right. if she were in the UK. Um, so what does it mean if these kids, you know, are being essentially, you know, we're sort of editing the world and telling them what's important um, right. So that's on my mind, but I'm also equally distressed at the fact that this is where we are. Like the, the editing, the editorial choices reflect where we are in terms of our relationship to our, to our world or to our environment. And um, I absolutely am digging in my heels and refusing to concede that somehow it's more important that we exist fully in the, in the virtual or in the technological when you know, the, the kind of wider world that supports all life is you know, not only ex going through the sixth extinction, but becoming increasingly unknown to us. So how, why would we even take care of it or, um, you know, fight for it if, if we don't know it, if we don't care about it? Right. Well, and, and you touched on the word important. We're, we're communicating very clearly to the next generation what we find matters. 
what we should give our attention to. And by removing these words, we are essentially saying that all this that came before us really doesn't matter because this is the world we want you to inhabit, which is so unfair. Um, and, it, and it takes stopping and being mindful uh, and giving that, that attention. And I think that's what you do in familiars. And it's just, it's really, really a lovely book. I'm wondering, you know, we opened the podcast with you reading something. Would you be willing to pick out a couple um, of the smaller pieces or, I mean, really any that you want to do? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I think it is important to do some of these smaller ones because honestly, many of them are very, very short because I was thinking about through the process of making lost lexicon, I really was thinking like, how do you, how do I write something? How do I make something that will reach someone even before they can reject it? You know, even before they can decide, oh, I'm not really that into poetry. That's not my thing. Yeah. Um, and so that, that kind of gave me a, a formal constraint. The idea being like, this needs to be as compact as possible. And um, so here's, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Here's one that actually was part of the last lexicon, but suited this book enough that it carried over. And this is Crocus. I traveled cold dominions to arrive. When a woman leans close, we recognize each other. And then here's one that, um, because we're talking about children, actually this was part of Lost Lexicon as well. Uh, there were a number of trees on the list, um, including beech and ash and hazel, but this is my three line poem for Sycamore. 200 summers, so children will know reasons for leaves. I love, I, I just, I love the concise nature of, of your language, but the conceptual depth of it that you can unpack it. And there is so much there that relates to but why you wrote it, what it means, um, and the broader implications of, um, yeah, of just what it means for language and how we, how we grow our future. So just love it i love oh, it so much thank you susan thank you thank um, you yeah you know sit I, here oh go ahead well i was what i was going to say just about the um the kind of concise nature and conceptual depth depth that um i think it would be possible to i'm not saying that you have this impression but i think it would be possible to look at these and think oh wow you know sort of simple right like especially because they are so brief and um, and direct the, the 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 diction is meant to be available to all. It's not. I'm not looking for the most sort of um, complicated way to say it or the biggest words. Um, but I think I'm able to achieve that because I really I wrote so many poems in response to this dilemma, this challenge, and. Um, you know, I submitted many more than made it into the final book, but even before submitting my, you know, the manuscript that we then worked from to develop the final book, I tossed dozens and dozens and dozens of poems. I mean, I spent, you know, 
five days a week for two and a half years thinking about these things and writing about them and trying to evoke through simple, direct, you know, evocative language, what was coming to me in that process. And so I think one of, you know, at its best, a book is itself a distillation of a very long process and one that's not entirely visible to, it can maybe be felt that I think there's kind of like ghost ink, um, but, you know, it's, a reader doesn't have access to all of that, but that's, right. you know, that we, sh we share the tip of the iceberg and underneath that is the, the kind of constant revisiting of how do we talk about this? How do, how do I, as a, as a humble poet, move anyone to feel anything remotely close to what I feel in response to this, this you know, problem and quandary we're in? Well, and I think you do it effectively. And like you said, you, you use a language that's accessible. So you invite a conversation, whether it's an external conversation with another person or an internal conversation, like I, I need to digest this. What does this mean? What does this look like? And then you allow the reader to have these aha moments that, oh, wait a minute, that's not what it means at all. It means this or this, um, which I think is an important aspect to any good writing. You know, if you can walk away from words and not look back, that says something about the words. Um, you know, I have, I, have, I have stacks of books. I'll, I'm a, I am addicted to books, but I've been consuming a lot of poetry over the last few months, which I think a lot of people have, have turned to, but um, I've just been devouring it. And out of all these books, there's just a small stack that some I've already gone back and read three or four times because the words stayed with me, you know? And I, in the middle of the day, I'd be doing something and having this feeling and, and a line from a poem. And it's like, I, I gotta go find it. And I'd go back and find the book. And oh yeah, it's in the same book that I keep going back to. Um, and I find that with your words. And even if August, I've had that, I don't know, a couple of years, I guess. And, you know, I'll read through and even though it's, you know, not too many lines on each page, I can't sit there and read the whole thing in a sitting. I have to read a couple. Some days it's only one because it's enough to feed me and keep my brain going. And so, um, oh, that's yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, well, that's exactly how I, I love for that book to be read. I mean, even though for sure it was designed to be read from front to back, you know, when one should choose to do that. Um, I'm very happy for, you know, one line to stick or, you know. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to jump back, jump out of your books and into your teaching a little bit. I, I've been fortunate to, to participate in an in-person workshop with you, which was one of the most beautiful experiences I've had in a teaching environment but also online. And I'd, I'd like to start with some of your online things, like your Poetry is Consolation and other offerings in Poetry Forge because Poetry for Consolation began as a way to cope. It was, it was a coping mechanism for people to join in and exist in this time of being completely scattered and, and our lives have been changed. So tell us a little bit about Poetry for Consolation, and then some of the other offerings you have at Poetry Forge. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. Um, 
in March, we had been, you know, my family and I opted to lock down before our state lockdown. And very quickly, I was thinking about how can I help? You know, what can I do to support my community as people um, shelter in place and lose work and deal with illness and all of the things that, you know, where we were, we could see in the future. And my thought was, we get together, we write, we visit with, with other artists who have interesting ways of, you know, being, being in the moment, whatever the moment looks like. And, um, and that's it. That's, we'll just, we'll just, give it a go. <laughs> I think I, the first time I did it, I wasn't seeing it as a series. I just thought we'll do this and see how it goes. And the response was tremendous. I mean, you know, commonly 50, 60 people are present. We've had as many as a hundred present. And yet it does feel very cozy. Um, these workshops are offered by donation. So they're available to anyone, no matter what their circumstances are. Um, but it's also been really nice that, that people do give when they're able and that then supports a scholarship fund, which helps people continue to uh, pursue their creative writing education with me if, if they need tuition assistance. Um, so that series is ongoing. We're getting ready to have our 14th pop-up workshop in the series and they kind of happen as I can fit them in and as I can line up guests. Um, and I have loved in the context of running those workshops where, where, you know, my hope is that folks will not only enjoy their experience, but leave with some language that's been generated in real time together and then have something to work on when they leave. Because I think that is also one of the constellations to, um, to know in each day you have like something that you're excited to work on, something that you want to steal away and do as soon as you take care of the other things that are required of you. Um, and we've, we've, because the form is quite flexible, I have invited many guest artists who are not specifically writers, but where I know we can learn something as, as writers from them, whether they're, um, I mean, our most recent guest was a, is a Buddhist seminarian and um, sort of improvisational quilter and writer. So she, she speaks our language and that was wonderful. And we did a meditation together and um, we thought about quilts as metaphors and she gave a lovely Dharma talk. And there's, there's a way in which no matter what's happening, it's going to be interesting and it's going to feed your artistic life. So that's Poetry as Consolation. The other things that are ongoing include um, a quarterly writing challenge called the 21 Day Poetry Challenge, which is um, a combination of lessons that you receive in your inbox and live workshops. And the goal is to write every day for 21 days with my support. And in the process of doing that, we're reading um, poems by contemporary, usually living writers, um, some of them in translation. And I'm always making a great effort to have a, a diverse reading list because I wanna introduce participants to voices that they may not have heard of, um, but whom they'll surely fall in love with. And that happens every, every three months in the month when we will either have a a solstice or an equinox. And the idea is you sort of write your way to the threshold of the new season. So they're very attuned to the seasons, but they also always have a theme. Um, our next, our December writing challenge will have the theme of signs. So I'm thinking about portents and, you know, different, different ways in which we might interpret the word signs. 
Those, very, those are two really key offerings. Yeah. There, you, as you know, there are throughout the year, I have many, many other special topics and the manuscript right. incubator, things like that. Right. And for that time that is will be coming, it'll be forthcoming. I don't know when. Uh, I wish somebody could predict it, but I don't think they can. The face-to-face -face opportunities, you know, the, the one that I attended and it's small darn pages. It, yes, I was yeah. the name just flew right out. I think because you know, you're a visual artist as well as a writer. That's the language I speak. I'm visual. I work with my hands a lot. I also like to write. This spoke to me, and, and I hope that people get a chance to do that because we met in just this beautiful area that as my husband is driving me to drop me off, he's going, are you sure it's out here? <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> it is um, yeah. a beautiful area, but but you you engage the brain in such a way that you've got, you know, this, you, you introduce it, um, you read poetry, you talk about other writers and how you can draw from other writers and you you give us a taste of of responding to something and and then you you stopped which i thought was brilliant because then we moved into doing this visual stuff and then came back to the writing with a completely different it was like a hitch in thinking that all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can look at this and I can go, oh, okay, now I see this that I wouldn't have seen before. So I love, mm -hmm. I love what you bring to um, the conversations, even with poetry for consolation. The, you know, the different variety of people that you have, it does the same thing. Yeah. Um, and and I haven't done all of them. I've just done a few. Um, in fact, I couldn't go to the one last week, and I am so anxious to sit down and watch the replay. And I'm going to do that this weekend. That is my sole goal. But I, I think sometimes people don't make that connection. Oh, you're a visual artist, but you're, you, how do you, how can you be a writer too? Does that translate? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's yeah. bigger than just, just one or the other. For sure. I mean, I, so in, in the past, not in COVID times, I've, taught at Interlochen Center for the Arts quite a bit. And that's also where I went to high school. So I have always been steeped in all of the arts and it's quite natural for me to think about the overlaps. In my teaching, I frequently you know, bring in accounts and resources related to dance, to visual art, mm -hmm. to music, to composition. And over my life, I've, I've collaborated across all of these disciplines with other artists, um, dancers, choreographers, composers, and the like. For me, it's not important that one be good at these, at all of these things, but I think there are metaphors there. There's, there are ways that we can, whatever our primary discipline is, often we do sort of have, as you're describing that kind of aha that you got in the small pages workshop where we were really working between visual art and writing, um, that somehow, here's one of the things that can happen. If, I, I take my writing very seriously, but I take my visual art a little bit less serious because I don't identify as a visual artist per se, not in the, not out in the world, right? It's not like on my business card. And so I feel very playful and free and able to just experiment without expectation. And I really love to get people into the place where they can have that attitude toward whatever they're making. And sometimes we need to kind of walk into a different room to do that, right? Sort of put down the pen, you know, you, you have a lot of hope and expectation associated with that. Let's go do something where you're decidedly not an expert. You have no ambitions, particularly. 
but you know, with good instruction, you can have fun and do something and in, in doing so, perhaps learn something or make a connection um, more efficiently because the expectations have been stripped away. Also, it's just really fun. And I teach that particular workshop with my mother who's a painter and we do it in her garden and in her studio and we're surrounded by art and art books and materials and you know it's sort of like well it's like this magical kingdom up there <laughs> <laughs> oh i love that yes it is it's yeah we so you know it's a little retreat and when we have a vaccine or whatever needs to happen to make it safe to get together again that will continue absolutely i i absolutely miss getting together with people you know around a table or in, in a garden like that it needs to return for sure yeah well it will it will. It, I, it I have will. confidence. It I have will. confidence. In fact, I'm yeah. already starting to think about, all right, we really, we are really going to need to get together by the time this is over. And so what's that going to look like? And I have some, some little ideas percolating. All right. With that, I would like to ask you, um, people can find you online on Instagram and at your website. Um, they can order the book from, which would, would you tell us is a small business, please. But you, <laughs> <Yes>. you, <laughs> I, we you will not mention the the major retailer where um, who doesn't need, that doesn't need our any more of our money. The best place to get the <laughs> book um, is through Literati Bookstore in Ann Arbor. Okay, I'm very one. devoted to supporting them because they are doing everything to stay afloat during COVID. They are getting books to people. They are hosting live events. They're hosting my official launch on November 30th. They're oh yeah, November 30th. Can they November can they 30th. register to it doesn't require that online? But okay. um, there is a link on the Literati Bookstore webpage. So if basically okay. Googled Literati Bookstore and Holly Rand's Falling, I think you're gonna find the event. Okay. And it's just click the event at 7 p.m. on November 30th. Um, I'll be in conversation with the poet and um, an essayist, Keith Taylor, who's retired from University of Michigan recently, and I've known him since my days as a student there. So that'll be lovely. There will be a little bit of reading. And, and because that's supported by Literati and because they're also located very close to my publisher's offices, um, those are, you know, that's a great way to get the book. But it is available directly through Alice Green and Company. And I also have copies if people reach out to me, but sometimes it's easiest to just go and click on a, on a bookstore web, web page. Right, right. And then they can look for you, just Google your name or Google Poetry Forge and you'll exactly. be able to, to access it. Um, I really encourage my listeners to go out there and check it out. See if you can't find something that will speak to you so that you can join in the great process that, that Holly offers. This has just been so much fun. I love talking to you. Uh, there's a backstory behind our interview today <laughs> that, that has covered a while, but I'm, I'm just so grateful that it finally worked out, hopefully the right way. I, I'm going to ask, I'm going to close with a question I've started asking some of the people I, I talk with. What is one question you wish someone would ask you when it comes to your work? What is something you'd really like to be asked? Oh, gosh. That is a great question. <clears throat> well, let me cast about here and offer some possibilities. I do, because I think because I'm a teacher, 
and I'm very attuned to the challenges that other writers are facing in their work, particularly when they're make when they're working on manuscripts. I I do appreciate being asked process questions. I and and you have asked me some of those. Um, because it means that I can talk about how a thing is made. It's not, these things don't sort of erupt fully formed through some right. magical alchemy between, you know, being, um, you know, an you know, somewhere between like being accomplished enough to have a book and having a publisher who, who cares enough to publish it. There's an incredible amount of um, wayfinding, you know, sort of from, from the beginnings of anything that becomes a book and the final product. And so I think it's, I think it's valuable to address what that looks like. And I, and I've offered some insights into that. Um, I also want to mention that, you know, I tend to work in a, in isolation in the sense that I don't have a lot of writing community. I don't have a lot of peers around me. Uh, it used to be different, but when I moved to the East coast and because of family and the nature of my work, it just, I don't have a lot of close peers in my writing life at this point. And I miss that very much. It has required that I become incredibly resourceful, sort of self-resourceful. And yet I also want to acknowledge that there were, there were a couple of people who really stuck with me while making familiars. You know, one of whom was the poet Britt Washburn who happens to also be a very dear friend. And you know, like a couple of key conversations along the way be, were absolutely instrumental in, in figuring out important things about this book. Um, there's another person, a composer actually, who, who played that role. And so I think when, when I imagine your audience and I hope, you know, I imagine some of them, maybe most of them are also writers who may also feel isolated, who may also feel like they don't have the peers that they need to, to do their best work. Do not, underestimate or discount, you know, the, the conversations, the sort of very few but precious conversations that you do have or that you can have, you know, that you could reach out and ask for. Um, because those, sometimes something very innocent, I mean, I'm thinking about one conversation that happened while I was in traffic in Boston with a friend named Jim, who's a, he's a sculptor. And it was, we were just having kind of a casual conversation, but there was something in that conversation that, that radically shaped how this book, the form it mm. took, which had to do with actually the order of the poems. Originally they were all in alphabetical order because that's how Lost Lexicon was arranged. And it sort of compelled you to move through this gallery in a particular way, which I wanted to do. And so those, you know, you sort of, the image that's coming to my mind is like, I'm sort of clinging to those. Maybe it's a once a year conversation as though it were a life raft. To, to move decisively forward in the projects I care about. And maybe during COVID, when, when people are, don't have access to their communities in the way that they've had in the past, they're not having coffees and going to, going to live events this, in the same way, you can still sort of pause and ask yourself, particularly if you're in a project that's, that is troubling you or bedeviling you in some way, who do I need to talk to? To just air some things. I mean, that's what's, you know, with my friend Pete, the composer, I went to him and I said, I just need to talk out loud about what I'm working on because I have this sense that you, um, that talking with you might give it some air. You know, it needed oxygen. I needed some perspective. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so the essence of that, I think, is about reaching out and asking for those conversations that can help us to um, 
to move something forward. Thank you. That, that's great because I, I think there are a lot of people, and I'm, I'm one of those, I'm one of those that doesn't have that, that close community. Um, so I love hearing that, you know, it's not, it's not the constant feedback, but singular moments that happen that can really change how you do things or how something comes to life. And uh, it's a good reminder that it doesn't always have to be the same thing for it to be its best self. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's, that is exactly right. And, um, and I think the, the sort of implied piece of that is really the asking, you know, sort of asking for um, a kind of attention. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, Which can be hard to do. It's challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. I, it's not in my, it's not in my usual practice, in fact. Um, but I do think it's necessary. You know, we have to kind of have that, the self-esteem to say, I, I'm, I'm going to ask for someone to spend a little time with me and help me figure this out. And probably a lot of what's going to happen there is that they're going to listen and maybe yeah. just re- reflect back. And uh, when we go about things that way, we might realize, oh, we do actually have more, more support around us than we realize. Thank you again. This has been an absolute delight. Uh, it's been so fun to see your face again. Now, my audience won't get to see your face, but it's fun for me to see it. And I am really excited to share you with all of them. So thank you, mm-hmm. Holly. Thank you, Susan. And thank you for being a good friend to this book already. I think you are probably one of the very first to get a copy. And um, it's very satisfying to have it read and have it be understood. I I really appreciate that. So thank Thank you. you. To learn more about Holly and Poetry Forge, visit poetryforge.us and hollyrenspalding.com. You can find information on current and upcoming offerings, as well as learn about her poetic ethos. Several of her offerings, like Poetry as Consolation, are by donation, and Holly uses those donations to generously provide scholarship opportunities. Make sure you sign up for her newsletter and stay up to date on what's happening at Poetry Forge. This is one newsletter you'll look forward to finding in your inbox. To order a copy of her book, Familiars, head to literatibookstore.com. Familiars would make a great Christmas gift for the writers in your life and is a wonderful way to support a small business in the process. I can't emphasize enough the significance of each purchase for independent booksellers right now. Your commitment to shop small means more than ever. Many shops have gone online, so look for your favorites and support them while providing unique and memorable gifts for the people in your life. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Poet Kind. As this year comes to its close, my wish for you is that you are able to find the small pockets of joy that are waiting to be discovered. I also hope that we can each look beyond ourselves and find those moments where we can reach out to someone else. We are living in a collective experience right now, and our emotions, our physical beings, our livelihoods have all been deeply impacted. Something as simple as flowers left on a doorstep can shift another's perspective and give them renewed hope. Something I started doing a few years back was leaving unexpected and anonymous gifts. 
The first year I did this, I bought a dozen reusable drink containers and I found them on clearance, filled them with candy, and tied a note on with ribbon. Over the course of the Christmas season, when shopping wears people down, I would leave one of these on a car or two, or surprise the worker at a drive through by handing them something before they gave me an order. Another year I did the same thing with books, another with $5 Starbucks cards. Doesn't have to be expensive, super time-consuming, or fancy. You don't even need to do a dozen of anything. Simply doing it for one person can have a huge impact. You never know. The one small thing you choose to do may change more than just that moment for them. That's all for today. One last thank you for joining me and one last thank you to Holly. If you've made it this far and you're one of my regular listeners who know I drop an episode before I even begin to market it, you have the opportunity to join in on Holly's book launch tonight. Head over to literatibookstore.com at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Grab a glass of something festive and toast familiars. One final reminder, please support your local and small businesses this season. You will be helping them keep their doors open until we can visit again in person. Also, consider handmade. Many craftspeople rely on in-person marketplaces during this time of the year for their livelihoods, and many of these events have been canceled. Check out Etsy. Find something special and support living, breathing artists as opposed to mass market products. You can also do things like support your favorite podcast <clears throat> or other people-run services, especially your local food pantries and shelters. When we are more intentional about how and where we spend our dollars, we are creating positive impact as opposed to merely consuming goods. So until next time, take care, be well, be kind. Take time to write, to paint, to make whatever it is you were created to do. Make space for that. You will be making the world a better place in the process. Thank you.